Hello and welcome to this episode of British Culture, Albion Never Dies. Today I'm looking at James Bond in Istanbul. This is part one, it will be part of a series, and I'm looking at Ian Fleming's From Russia With Love. In chapter 13, BEA takes you there. James Bond sits on the aeroplane and reads The Mask of Demetrios by Eric Ambler. It's a four-propellered aeroplane from London Airport to Rome, Athens and Istanbul. It was published in the United States as a coffin for Demetrios, and it's a really interesting choice of reading for Ian Fleming's James Bond. It was written by the, uh, the English novelist Eric Ambler, and the star of the novel is the English crime novelist Charles Latimer, now in his late 30s, travelling from Istanbul, where he makes the acquaintance of a Turkish police inspector, Colonel Haki. From a colonel, he hears of an infamous master criminal named Dimitrios Markropoulos. Long wanted by the law, his body has just been fished out of the Bosphorus. Intrigued, the fictitious Latimer resolves to retrace Dimitrios' steps across Europe to gather material for a new book. But, as fascination tips over into obsession, Latimer gradually uncovers more and more about his subject's shadowy world and realises his own life may well be in peril. Eric Ambler is often regarded as the inventor of the modern suspense novel. Beginning with The Dark Frontier in 1936, he wrote a series of novels where you have an ordinary protagonist thrust into political intrigues for which they are ill-prepared. These novels are praised for their realism, and Ambler established himself as a thriller writer of depth and originality, in the process paving his way for such writers as John le Carre, who wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Len Dayton, famous for the Ipgris file, and Robert Ludlum, the Jason Bourne series. In fact, reading The Mask of Demetrios, I would say that uh, Ian Fleming also owes quite a debt to uh, Eric Ambler. In addition to novels, Eric Ambler also wrote a number of screenplays, including the World War II Royal Navy film that came out in 1953, The Cruel Sea. The Sea, The Cruel Sea, which man has made yet more cruel. That won him an Academy Award nomination. It is a really interesting book because, of course, it's set in, uh, well, before the war. It's about an academic who's become a crime writer, and he talks about really kind of post-Ottoman Turkey, whereas Ian Fleming's James Bond is seeing Turkey a full generation onwards. And it's really interesting to compare the two. It's quite a whimsical book for James Bond to read on the aeroplane, but then he does have his whimsies in the novels, as we see later on from his choice of hotel. You could also see it as a tip of the hat from Fleming to Ambler, whose laconic, suspenseful style was probably an influence on Fleming. It certainly seemed quite similar to me. Um, and I think Fleming, when he was writing this novel, could well be aware of comparisons between Ambler's Istanbul writing and his own. Of course, Ian Fleming would stay in the Pera Palace Hotel, which is where Agatha Christie wrote Murder on the Orient Express. And of course, from Russia with Love has that iconic scene on the Orient Express. So he's aware of these literary influences all around him and is giving suitable nods. So, just from the first chapter, already going on the way to Istanbul, not the first chapter of From Russia with Love, but the first chapter that I'm taking, chapter 13, we have a really interesting insight into Turkish culture from a very, very British perspective. In fact, if I were to, to ponder further on this chapter, um, Bond reflects on tools of his trade hidden his luggage by the Q department. Of course, there is no Q in the books. We have a Q department, which is likely influenced by Q ships in the First World War. They looked like ordinary ships from a distance, but then a panel would reveal guns. 
Of course, this is likely where Q got his name rather than the quartermaster suggested by Skyfall. A bit like C in real life does not mean chief, although it may have evolved to become so as Cummings, as in Mansfield Smith Cummings, the first initial of that name gives us M in the Bond films, not Mallory or Mother, as the film suggests as well. <laughs> The literary bond flies on April the 13th against the wishes of his secretary, Lolia Ponsonby, again never seen in the films, and Bond wonders why he bothers with other women when his own secretary was the most darling of them all. I wonder if the character of Lolia is actually kind of brought into the character of Miss Moneypenny uh, in the films. Of course, Moneypenny is a very, very, very minor uh, feature of the books. There was a real-life uh, Lolia Ponsonby. Um, she was a British peeress and a magazine editor who married the then twice-divorced Hugh Grosner, second Duke of Westminster. They were married on the 20th of February 1930 in a blaze of publicity with Winston Churchill as the best man, but were unable to have children and their marriage uh, disastrously failed. Um, it was dissolved in 1947 after years of separation and it's believed that Lindsay um, popularised the aphorism falsely attributed to Margaret Thatcher, anyone seen in a bus over the age of 30 has been a failure in life. <laughs> it appears to have been coined initially by the British poet Brian Howard. Anyway, the real-life Lolia Ponsonby's memoirs were written in 1961 entitled Grace and Favour, The Memoirs of Lolia, Duchess of Westminster, and they are a significant record of aristocratic life between the First and Second World Wars. I wonder if it would be a good book for those who love Downton Abbey. The foreword, by the way, is by Noel Coward, um, who starred in 1942's In Which We Serve, uh, another great Royal Navy film, but the book itself extremely expensive to get hold of so uh, only for those with a very special interest again I enjoy going through the Ian Fleming novels and just picking out these interesting little facets going on these little Google rabbit holes and seeing what I can find as an insight into well Fleming's world Bond is motivated very early on in part two of From Russia of Love as motivated by boredom, similar to Sherlock Holmes and engaging in similarly self-destructive behaviour between missions, not the 7% solution for Ian Fleming's James Bond, more his troubling temper with other departments and other heads. Um, also similar to Sherlock in the original Arthur Conan Doyle adventures, uh, James Bond has this Scottish housekeeper who uh, fusses over him. Again, never seen in the film, so I'm enjoying From Russia with Love rereading it once again because, well, I enjoy it so much and there's always plenty of details to pick up. After two martinis, yes, they're in the books, and a half bottle of Calvert Claret, Bond is happy to land in Yeshokoi. Yeshokoi means green village in Turkish, and this is, uh, well, was the airport, created around in the 1900s as an airstrip, and then created and recreated again and again until you get uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk Airport, um, which is, of course, one of the main airports there. There's this interesting little quote from Fleming. So here's the first section uh, that I'm going to actually just read out from the book. It's Bond's impressions on arrival in Istanbul. So, these dark, ugly, neat little officials were the modern Turks... He listened to their voices, full of broad vowels and quiet sibilance, and mollified U sounds, and watched the dark eyes that belied the soft, polite voices. They were bright, angry, cruel eyes that had only lately come down from the mountains. Bon thought he knew the history of those eyes. 
They were eyes that had been trained for centuries to watch over sheep and decipher small movements on far horizons. They were eyes that kept the knife hand in sight without seeming to, that counted the grains of meal and the small fractions of coin, and noted the flicker of the merchant's eyes. They were hard, untrusting, jealous eyes. Bond didn't take to them. I think there's quite a few interesting things in that section. Aside from Bond's perception of the foreigner, I thought the broad vowels, the quiet sibilance, the modified ooh sounds, was really interesting. Of course, I would have been studying Turkish for over 20 years. Turkish is quite unlike Arabic, to which is often compared, most particularly in that there are so many vowel sounds. They have more letters for them. Of course, they're considered different letters in Turkish. We might see them as just an undotted U and a dotted U and an undotted I and a dotted I, but they're all quite distinct in their pronunciation. Quite unlike Arabic, I would say, which has less attention to vowels and more attention to consonants. Turkish was written in the Arabic alphabet for a long time, many centuries, for religious reasons. But the new Turkish Republic changed that, switching to a modified Western alphabet in late 1928, putting it into law that it must be used January the 1st, 1929. And yes, containing plenty and plenty of broad vowels. The quiet sibilants I find interesting. Those, of course, are the s and sh and z sounds in a language, which you would naturally get on arriving in Turkey as people say Hoshgeldeniz and Hoshbulduk, welcome and, well, thank you, I guess. I found welcome would be a more literal translation. Hoshgeldeniz. Yeah, that makes sense. You have the quiet sibilant of a s and a z. And the modified u sounds were yes. Turkish has the u, for example, in gul as in rose. Roses are mentioned frequently in the first half of the novel. So he does accurately reflect on the Turkish language. Bond thought he knew the history of those eyes. They were eyes that had been trained for centuries to watch over sheep and decipher small movements on far horizons. So he's talking about, for example, the Silk Road. The Ottoman Empire's success was partly built on being the terminal stop of the Silk Road, going through Central Asia, what would now be Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. This was all part of the Ottoman influence, and I think has been beautifully portrayed in the Turkish movie Geneti Beklerken, or Waiting for Heaven, which came out in 2006. I think the artistry of it is still very, very present, and I'm, I'm always surprised it didn't get bigger than it was. It was an award-winning art film, Waiting for Heaven. The dangers in living memory... Well, yes, the Turkish War of Independence, 19th of May 1919 to 24th of July 1923, very much in the mind, and it forms a background to the novel Bond was reading on the aeroplane. So it was a murder mystery that partly starts amid the chaos of that war, the Turks fighting for independence from the Greeks, who were then occupying much of Western Turkey, and of course the British and French occupying Istanbul. But... I think it must be forefront in Bond's mind very much as he's reading uh, the novel. And I only realise this reading that same novel. And he talks about the new Turkey. Um, Ataturk had led phenomenal reforms in the 20s and early 30s, dying on the 10th of November 1938 uh, and handing over, really, to his closest friend, Ismet Inonu, who then became president for many, many, many years after that when Bond lands, uh, assuming the timeline, the publication of the novel is when the novel is set, then the president is Metanonu. One person said that Turkey has lost her lover in Ataturk and must now settle down with his wife, is Metanonu. He was the stable, sure leader 
compared to Atatürk, who revolutionised anything, everything that could be revolutionised. Perfectly portrayed, by the way, uh, by the English writer Lord Kinross, who interviewed many, many, many of those who are very, very close to Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the first president of Turkey. As Bond lands in Istanbul, a tall, rangy man takes him in an old black basketwork Rolls-Royce Coupe de Ville that perhaps belongs to a millionaire in the 1920s. I like this. I started to look into what is a, a Coupe de Ville. It's a, a car in which the driver compartment is open or without a roof, while the passenger compartment is closed, or it can mean just a car with a partition, usually glass, between the compartments or even a removable roof over one or both compartments. The basket work is what really interested me. I found this on the blog Fleming's Bond. It doesn't refer to actual wickerwork panels, but to a painted-on design known as basket work. It's really interesting. I think a kind of interim between the kind of cars that were made of uh, smart wooden panels and the cars that would be all metal later on. I think that basket work was an interesting kind of transition period. And then Bond is taken to his hotel, the Crystal Palace. Bond stays there as the name just amuses him. I had a look on the Encyclopedia Britannica just for some solid facts on the original Crystal Palace, <laughs> which is, of course, in London. It's a giant glass and iron exhibition hall in Hyde Park, London, that housed the Great Exhibition of 1851. The structure was taken down and rebuilt 1852-54 to at Sydenham Hill, now in the borough of Bromley, uh, which site it survived until 1936. In the original exhibition, some 14,000 exhibitors participated, nearly half of whom were non-British, showing off the best of engineering and design, art and culture from all over the world. It was a turning point, really, in education and awareness of the wider world in the mid-19th century, and almost every great trade exhibition that's ever occurred since owes some kind of debt to the Great Exhibition of 1851. It was a real breakthrough. The number of visitors at the original exhibition amounted to just over one-third of the British population at the time, but of course people came from all over the world. According to the Crystal Palace Foundation, the building was dubbed the Crystal Palace by Douglas Gerald, writing for the Punch magazine in 1850. In my previous podcast, I talk about Private Eye magazine. That is, in many ways, a natural successor to the satirical Punch magazine. During the First World War, it was used as a Royal Naval Shore Station HMS Victory, over 125,000 men and women serving in the Royal Naval Air Service, Royal Naval Division, Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, RNVR, which is what James Bond, the fictitious James Bond, serves in, and Women's Royal Naval Service, Wrens, were trained there during war service. According to Charlie Higson, the author of the Young Bond series, James Bond was born in Zurich, Switzerland in 1920 to Andrew and Monique Delacroix Bond. This fits the rough timeline of Ian Fleming, so Bond would have been about 16 years old when Crystal Palace burned, and likely knew it as a then seemingly permanent part of the world and a very, very significant landmark. After all, anyone who remembered it being built would have been in their late 80s or 90s by then. So, it amuses Bond that there is a hotel in Istanbul named The Crystal Palace. Fleming describes it as pretty dingy and on the heights of Pera. Pera is a district in Istanbul on the European side, just north of the Golden Horn. Bond got out of bed, drew back the heavy red plush curtains and leant on the iron balustrade and looked over one of the most famous views in the world. 
On his right, the still waters of the Golden Horn. On his left, the dancing waves of the unsheltered Bosphorus. And, in between, the tumbling roofs, soaring minarets, and crouching mosques of Pera. Pond does describe this hotel as terrible as the details are seemingly flipped from the real-life hotel where Fleming stayed and Agatha Christie stayed before. That, however, is for part two. I hope you enjoy this. I'm just flicking through uh, from Russia with Love, picking out little cultural details that I think are of interest. I'm going to carry on going through the book, picking out little sentences, little ideas, and I hope that you will enjoy this journey as much as I have. Thank you very much for listening. Part two, of course, will carry on the story. So if you have a copy of From Russia with Love to Hand, flick through and see if you have any questions about this British perception of Istanbul.